HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ronnie Sue's Chocolates, a confectioner in New York engaged in responsible cacao sourcing from the Toledo district of Belize. Check them out at roni-sue.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef, owner of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg. It's October 18th, and I highly considered wearing a tank top and bathing suit today, so that's happening with the weather. We're broadcasting live from very weirdly hot Bushwick, Brooklyn today from the backyard of Roberta's Pizza. So drop a few more ice cubes in your cold brew. Turn up the volume on your laptop. I've got a great guest with me today. Sitting across from me in the booth is Chef Hillary Sterling. She was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, only a short drive from where we are sitting right now. After high school, she ventured away from New York. She ended up in the Midwest at Indiana University. She then later went on to Chicago to attend Le Cordon Bleu. She has worked at restaurants run by Bobby Flay, Mario Batali, and Missy Robbins, and she now runs the kitchen at Neighborhood Favorite Vicks, located on Great Jones in the NoHo section of Manhattan. I'm excited to talk about old school Brooklyn, the pros and cons of going to culinary school, and much more on today's episode. Hillary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. So uh, you're a native New Yorker. You were born in Sheepshead Bay, correct? I was born in Sheepshead Bay. Uh, did you spend your entire childhood there? I did, and I grew up in the same house my father grew up in. Oh, cool. I had the same bedroom. My sister had my aunts, and uh, we are a, a true New York, Brooklyn family. Awesome. So uh, when did your family move to Brooklyn then? did your, Was your dad born in America? Yeah, my dad was. My grandparents, uh, my Grandmother was born in the Lower East Side, and my grandfather was born in Harlem in the back of a candy shop. Um, they actually got, they met when they were 16, and eventually they found their way to Sheepshead Bay, uh, Brooklyn. Um, and my father um, was born in Brooklyn as well. I was actually born in Queens, and then our apartment building caught on fire when I was about a year old, and we moved in with my grandparents and then never left. What brought your grandparents to Sheepshead Bay? Was it uh, was it a job opportunity or just having a house? It was housing. Or, okay. It was housing. They, mm -hmm. I mean, they bought this house for very little money in the 40s, and my family sold it uh, about 15 years ago. 
And the tree that my grandmother planted was enormous by the time I was a small child. So it was a really, really wonderful place to grow up. Did you have mixed feelings when the house got sold? Uh, yes. I mean, my parents sold it and they, um, it was a little sad. I was actually in Italy at the time and mm-hmm. I came back and I ended up sleeping on my sister's couch in, uh, in Soho because that's all. That's where I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> and so what is uh, childhood like in Sheep's Head Bay growing up? I think it's a little bit um, more secluded than people think it is. Uh, you know, it's a small neighborhood. We had uh, Brighton Beach and Manhattan Beach and Coney Island right nearby. And, you know, my dad would sneak us out and take us to Nathan's for hot dogs and not tell our, our mom because back then Coney Island wasn't um, what it is now. And he would wait in the car and let my sister and I run up to the window and we were probably eight and nine and, and get our hot dogs with mustard and sauerkraut and then run back to the car real quick and... For uh, listeners out there that that haven't ventured south of, say, Bushwick, (laughs) uh, so Brighton Beach and Manhattan Beach, they're on the Coney Island Peninsula, and they're just due south of Sheepshead Bay, right? Yeah, they're they're pretty close. Brighton is heavily Russian, and Mm -hmm. Brighton Beach is... Jewish, Italian, Jewish, sort of? Italian, okay. Russian. It's it all. It has the same uh, demographic, and it's been that way since you were a kid, right? Since I was a kid. Okay, cool. So there's got to be some cool food influences. I mean, I love the going to Nathan's. That's like must have been the most fun thing in the entire. It's still world now. Back I still go once a year just to get that hot dog. You gotta go to you gotta go to Coney and go to Nathan's. It's like the New York quintessential. Right. It just experience. makes me feel close to home every yeah. time. Uh, did you ever uh, venture into Brighton and go to like uh, Russian restaurants? Did you, did as you an eat adult, a lot, no. A lot as of a Italian kid, food growing up, so you much must Italian have, right? food. Yeah. yeah, I mean, baked ziti was like a staple. Yeah, I mean, Italian American food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, chicken parm was like a normal, normal occurrence. And then we followed that up with like corned beef sandwiches the next day, and then um, we did eat some Russian food. But mostly, my grandparents lived with us, um, so they would cook a lot. I okay, mean, it was really, really. Like, Where were they from? Uh, your your my, distant relatives, your great grandparents. Um, you know, we just did some research on the family, and there was um, some Russian, and we tried to go all the way back to find the town my great grandfather was from. We couldn't find it, mm-hmm. um, and then my grandmother's side was from Poland. Um, so there was a lot of that Eastern European flavors in the house, which now I still kind of use that in Northern Italian food and and bring that stuffed cabbage into the Italian Italian sense of what we do. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, you know, we'll jump ahead here, but I do want to talk about this stuffed cabbage dish that you do, which is a nice meld of flavors that Absolutely. it's not really an Italian dish. It's, no. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's so much um, in, in, North, um, in North Italy, you're, you're, you're having so many borders. So you have so many other countries that kind of are influenced into that food and um, and you get this, there's stuffed cabbage in every country. We, we did a poll the other day at work of everybody's nationalities and see what kind of stuffed cabbage they had in their childhood. Um, but mine was more about rice and raisins and beef. Mm-hmm. Um, in the north of Italy, you'll see a lot more pork, um, but still wrapped up in cabbage or veal with chestnuts. So mine is kind of like um, an ode to my grandmother, um, but more of a cleaner flavors and um, a little bit, a little spicier and a little more citrus. And it's, it just kind of, again, makes me feel that close to home thing where, you know, my grandmother passed away 10 years ago and it still feels real that she's there with me cooking every day. It's cool that the idea of a stuffed cabbage kind of transcends a little, a bunch of different food 
areas of the world, right? There, yeah. there are all these interesting things that come from all these different places, and you can kind of meld them together. It's all peasant food, that's right? It. I mean, yeah. that's it, it. It's all about like how to incorporate cabbage, which how to use you don't really want to eat a no. huge <laughs> mouthful of cabbage by itself. So how do you kind of dress it up and put things in Absolutely. it and, and braise it and, and make it into a different way? Um, so I want to go back a little bit to just your earliest food memories. You talked a little bit about you know, being in the house with some of those mm-hmm. flavors, but can you specifically remember like, um, a, besides like a big ziti, a, a dish that was present in your household that your mom or your dad or your grandparents always, their, their go-to? Totally. Go- I mean, you know, my family kept it really simple. Um, and I didn't understand that they kept it simple until, you know, one of my first memories about food really was in, this goes back to pre-kindergarten, and my teacher's name was Miss Johnson. I have no idea where Miss Johnson is now, <laughs> any of that kind of but stuff. But you remember I her remember this one reason, moment, yeah. and then I'll go into that, that dish that, um, that means something. But Miss Johnson used to ask us every Monday morning if we tried something different that weekend. Mm. And I remember someone said asparagus. This is like a crazy memory. And I had never heard of asparagus. I had no idea what asparagus was. And it didn't really register. And then my aunt used to grow asparagus out in Montauk. And I think I finally put two and two together what asparagus was. And I felt kind of lost that I didn't know what asparagus was. I guess I was four. I mean, to me now, I mean, asparagus is such a great sign of spring. It excites me. But Mm -hmm. that memory of like not knowing what that vegetable was. um, We ate so much food that was um, manipulated growing up. My grandmother would utilize everything. So she would make these uh, salmon cakes. This is something that followed me throughout my entire life. And it became a zucchini cake or a squash cake or a... And it was just these simple flavors of the salmon from the night before, a little smoked and and folded in with uh, bread and then shaved vegetables. And those flavors stay with me still. And it was just a, honestly, it was a, a, a leftover potato latke. I mean, down to the end of it. That's all it was. Um, and it just kept following me and growing. You just referenced your aunt's spot out um, in Montauk. We ran into each other last summer in Montauk. Uh, I was cooking at Rush Mars, but you're so that was like my first really experience out there. Uh, you're somewhat of a Montauk expert. You've been it. going there <laughs> your entire life. Basically, yeah. I remember you saying that w- when we were hanging out last summer that you said that you had a job out there when you were really young. You were I think you were bussing tables. I don't know. Tell us about going out to Montauk and then what was, why did your family go out there and what was your early jobs like over the summer? It was super cool. My, my aunt and uncle uh, went on their honeymoon in the seventies to Montauk and then eventually they purchased a house there. Um, And then we were young. um, I think we were around five or six or seven. The house across the street from my aunt and uncle went up for sale and it was this crazy old cottage with this woman who had eight children and, you know, my sister and I had never really been outside of Sheepshead Bay that much, and we were running around playing in the trees, and the woman was like, you know what, we're going to sell this house to you for whatever it is, and not the people that are going to come in and change it. But we had to do one thing, that was the only favor, we had to say, the sign outside said the Magic Cottage, and we had to keep that. That was the only deal my parents had to make to buy this house for this amount of money. Good deal. Good deal, totally. So my uh, family would go out there, and then I started working at the restaurant that was the closest to the house that I could walk to. Um, it was called the Blue Marlin. Um, and I started bussing tables. Like we had to vacuum the carpeting every day and dust the, you know, the blinds. And the chef wore a toque and a neckerchief. And I was so fascinated by him and so scared all at the same time. And I, and I loved that rush of being in service. And then I spent the next, 
many, many, many summers working um, at O'Murphy's Pub in town, frying blood sausage for Irish breakfast, working behind the bar, learning how to pour a Guinness. I worked at a breakfast spot in town as well. And um, and during the day, I'd worked at uh, the East Hampton Jewish Center teaching kids uh, about food. Um, we would play with food and make pizzas outside and make cookies. And um, so I kind of really, really enjoy being out there. It seems like it was an incredibly special place to be in the 70s, 80s, it was so special. 90s. <laughs> um, how much did you learn about the ocean and, and fishing. I know you use a lot of seafood in your I do. food now, and it seems like your first introduction was at a place called the Blue Marlin. Is that something that, does that feel deeply rooted in you because of Montauk, or is that something that you learned later on? I think it on? was like the smell by Gosman's. If you're, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that rush of the fishing boats going out and watching yeah. them and, and going down to the fish market and buying fish and buying clams and you know, I didn't, again, my family, we ate really, really like simple foods. Barbecue chicken was like a big staple out there. Um, and once I started meeting more locals out there, they would take me to Stewart's in East Hampton that when they didn't have a shop and it was like a stand and we'd go buy bushels of clams and put them on the grill and watch them open. And clams to me and, and are just one of that, that first moment where I fell in love with seafood. And I was, it was later, it was in my later teens, early twenties where I really, really embraced seafood and learned about, you know, the swordfish coming in from Block Island and, you know, and, and the albacore they were catching out there. And, and now I just I just kind of keep going back to those Montauk roots and that smell by the dock down mm -hmm. there, just really like that sweetness of the ocean. It just stays with me. Yeah, there's something very romantic about seeing the boats go out and mm -hmm. then they come back and then there's the product right there. And uh, for me, it always seemed like, uh, well, it's so great and it's so fresh, so just don't mess it up. You know, Don't try to right. do too much to it because it's you, so you know that whoever went out to catch it, that is their livelihood and they respect that so deeply. So um, when you were at the Blue Marlin, do you remember the chef's name, the Tom. Toke chef? Tom. His name was Chef Tom. I don't remember his last name. And his, <laughs> his wife worked the front door. Her name was Sue. And she ran that door like it was the military. And we weren't even, I mean, but she packed that place every night. And I remember the first night I left bussing tables, I had like $86 in my pocket tips. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm rich. I, I'm rich. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. That buys a lot of ice cream was a, in Southampton. Uh, totally. And John's. And, you know, and Tom was super, he was like one with one cook in the kitchen and one dishwasher. And that was it. It was an 80-seat restaurant. Wow. Um, they they were, were, so they were cranking they all were busy night long. And, yeah. and, you know, at the at O'Murphy's is where the, the fishermen would come to the back door. That's like that was the coolest part about that place was these guys would show up with bags of scallops, and I'd never seen someone. And the chef would take a bite of the scallops and just eat them raw, and I'd never seen that before. And I was super young, and and I was like, oh man, I don't know if I can do that. And I was like, well, okay. And so I did it, and and and, and could, that sweetness and and that creaminess of a raw scallop was amazing. So you have this deep connection to Montauk, your whole family's in Sheepshead Bay. I want to fast forward a little bit. Why did you decide to go to the Midwest for school? Hmm. Um, it seems like it would have been uh, sort of a scary move to, to travel a pretty far distance away from your family. We're talking... This is pre-cell phone, pre-FaceTime. Yeah, pre <laughs> pre uh, you know, everyone's like, Chicago, that's, uh, in Indiana, that's not that far away. But uh, it is. It, it is. really was a, a, a long plane ride. So um, why IU and um, why did you make the decision to study business? 
you know, I had worked in restaurants now going on three years. And my parents had given me the option of, of, of taking a year before college and being really pursuing my passion in the restaurant business. And I said, no, I think this is, I think this is the time I need to do this. Um, and I, my sister went to Cornell, and I visited her, and I was um, enthralled with the campus and the layers and, and the trees. And, I mean, it was the gorges. I mean, it was just really, really a beautiful place. And after looking at all these colleges, I f- walked on Indiana's campus, and right in the middle of the Arboretum was this just it was just like a, a small pond and it was, it was perfect. And I never looked back and they had a great business school for that level of college. Um, and I was like, let's, yeah, this is, this is, I knew at that moment, this is where I was going to college. I've been to the IU campus. I almost went there uh, <laughs> and I totally understand what you're saying. It is shockingly gorgeous. You are, uh, very confused when you drive through Indiana and you're well, those like, cornfields scared the hell out like, of me. Where are we going? Where will I end up? And then, wow, you open up into Bloomington and it's, um, there's something extremely special about it. Um, how did you enjoy your experience going to a large Midwest big 10 style college? Well, I mean, my high school had 4,000 people in it. So when I started looking at colleges, I looked at one, because I was playing soccer at the time, and, and I was like, oh, I could go here to play soccer. And, and the whole school had like a 1,000 people, and I was like, I need big. I need big. Mm-hmm. I, need, I need to meet people. And, you know, and I loved it. I, I wouldn't trade my, my four years at IU for the world. Um, I'm still close friends with some of my friends from that time. I learned so much about people because they had never met, you know, a, a Jew from New York, let alone I had never met someone from a town called Ferdinand, Indiana, that had like 40 people in it. Mm-hmm. And that took me home with them for Easter to go fishing for catfish in the lake. And I was like, well, this is an experience. And, and, and as the years unfolded, everything just came like that. And it just, I, I learned to eat food that I would never eat now. But I'd never seen ranch and pizza before. I, like, that was, that, I, I can't even believe I still ate it for those four <laughs> years, but I did. Um, and just different You cultures. became accustomed to the lovely, <laughs> the mid- trashy traditions <laughs> of Midwest cuisine. Midwest cuisine. But now IU is an amazing school for food and agriculture, and they Definitely. really celebrate farming now. Um, I wish I could fast forward back, you know, or rewind, go back and, and do that again. Not that I, you know, enjoy my business degree and what I do now, because we use it every day. But yeah. To celebrate the farmers in Indiana would be super cool now. Did you do any cooking at all when you were on the college campus, or were you just focused on school for those years? Not professionally. We, we cooked a lot. I mean, we would sneak into the kitchen late at night and cook, and mm-hmm. and I somehow was the, the person that did that, and, and it just be, kind of became who I was, and I really enjoyed being in a kitchen. It's cool because you had a great deal of restaurant cooking experience immersion from very young, and then you took these gap years yeah and then uh you went sort of the more like traditional route which is i go to school and i get a degree and then you decided to jump back uh what was the decision that made you want to go to culinary school and what's that time frame like did you graduate from iu and then go to culinary school right Uh, away or i graduated from iu and i worked in chicago for I moved up to Chicago and I worked at a bar across from Wrigley Field, one of the best things I ever did for a summer. That it was really like a amazing. Blast. It was super cool. Um, and I had this office job starting where I was a logistics broker for uh, trucking companies and, um, and freight companies, and we used to match them up, and it was really boring. I sat at a desk from 6.30 to 4.30 and I talked to people on the phone. And the Cordon Blue was around the corner. So I would go to work at night, and then I was like, well, if I want to go back to my passion in the restaurant business, do I want to be in the front or do I want to be in the back? And my thought process was that if I'm going to be an owner of a restaurant one day, I need to learn how to cook because 
um, the owner of O'Murphy's actually would get in that back kitchen whenever she needed to if someone didn't show up. And I was like, okay, I want to be that person that can get back there and cook the food I know how to do. And I was like, I'll sign up for one semester and let's see how it goes. And after day one, I was sold. I was like, this is okay. This is what I want to do. Wearing these whites felt like such an honor, and it felt it, I was so proud to do it, and and I was just learning, and it was rejuvenating, and I was super excited to do it. Do you remember a specific class or a, a technique that you were working on where you just said, "Oh, this is exactly I'm in where I want to be for the rest of my life"? Was it a was there a, was there a moment when you crossed a door into a room and said, "Oh, this is a hundred percent." this is the right fit for me? I think it was like that old school garmage class where um, my teacher, um, she she was like one of those like hipster badasses. And we're talking like this is in 2000. So it, that was kind of not normal for Chicago at the mm-hmm. time. And we were doing these terrines and these weird like aspic jellies, like, th- I mean, stuff that would never have a place now in today's world. And I just thought it was super cool and so outdated that we, they were forcing us to learn tradition. Um, and tradition is kind of what we do for a living. We honor people's heritage and traditions and we just revamp them. How do you feel about the, uh, I was, I was going to touch on this later on, but you sort of you sort of targeted that idea that a lot of things that happen in culinary school, they're not necessarily directly applicable to what happens in a restaurant, unless maybe you're working in a fine dining French restaurant. There's a lot of things that are learned there that maybe you don't do every day in the restaurant, um, but it forms this amazing basis, you know, the, the, right. the base for what you do. Um, how much of what you learned there in culinary school do you think is still applicable. Like, is, is it all so valuable or... Um... I mean, you need to know what a bird was and you need to know how to dice something. But I think culinary school uh, builds confidence. I mean, but also my culinary school wasn't what it costs now. It was affordable and there was four classrooms in it and it, it wasn't it wasn't what it is today. I mean, we had to work in the restaurant there and we had to do all those things that the students do now. But I think it just builds confidence if you want to go that route. I do believe if you have a a chef that's willing to have patience with you and have no education level and just have passion, they can teach you how to dice and chop and fry something. And, and if you're observant enough and you have the um, passion and drive, you can figure it out by yourself without going. Um, I think I didn't know how to get there just yet at that moment of my life. And, and I was still working at this job. And I think my culinary school was now is bigger and, and better. But at the time it was four basement classrooms and we were, and no one, I believe I might be the only person in my class that actually cooks for a living. I think, I think that's possible. I mean, we were all career changers, essentially, whatever you want to call that. Everyone had college degrees, and we went at night together, and it was a mutual respect for each other. And I, I believe during the day was a little more uh, young. Um, uh, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was really nice to bring together different people and backgrounds to learn about their cooking and how they want to eat and but I don't think it's that important in the end, really. I'm, I think if you're willing to put yourself out there, you can learn through a chef. I'm here with Hillary Sterling, chef of Vicks in Manhattan. When we come back, we'll talk about what Hillary does after she graduates from Le Cordon Bleu in Chicago. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio.
This episode is brought to you by Ronnie Sue's Chocolates, the New York confectioner where chocolate begins at the source. Ronnie Sue's own direct trade chocolate is handcrafted in Belize, made with organic Mayan cacao. We're making the, the chocolate down there, bean to bar, and we employ several folks, local folks, that have learned the craft of chocolate making. And uh, we actually have a factory in Belize. Um, when I say factory, I mean, it's like this big, kind of like, you know, Heritage Radio. <laughs> We're almost in a shipping container. Ronnie Sue loves to geek out about chocolate. Come to her atelier on the Lower East Side and get schooled. Sign up for a hands-on make-and-take chocolate truffle class and let Ronnie Sue show you how it's done. Stop by to watch the action in their open production kitchen and enjoy a few chocolates in the secret backyard garden. Take some confections home or shop online at roni-sue.com. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today I'm joined by Chef Hilary Sterling of Vix in Manhattan. Hillary grew up in Sheepshead Bay. She spent her summers in Montauk uh, working at the Blue Marlin and uh, getting immersed in that sort of seafood culture. She then later went to Indiana University and graduated there with a BS in business and marketing. When uh, she moved to Chicago, she decided to attend culinary school at Le Cordon Bleu. Upon graduation, she uh, returned to New York City to begin her culinary career. So, uh, first off, uh, did you stay at all in Chicago and cook there? Um, and when you returned to New York City, uh, what was your first job here? Um, I didn't end up staying in Chicago, which now I slightly regret. But at the time, it was either Trotter's, Blackbird, or I think True. I mean, that was my options. And I don't think I financially could afford to still live in Chicago and work at one of those places and Chicago got small, and I was ready to come back and <clears throat> and pursue what I wanted to do here in New York. Um, I did take three or four months to travel through um, Italy and Spain, a little bit in France before I came back. And um, I was living on my sister's couch and on Thompson Street, um, around the corner from Lupa at the time. I didn't know that's – I should have just stopped there first. But <laughs> I had to go through a different route yeah. to get there. Um, and I applied for a bunch of jobs, and I had no idea what I was looking for. I think I was looking for someone to take me in and, and to teach me. And I ended up working at Mesa Grill um, on Fifth Avenue, and it was such a big restaurant. And it was bright, and it was busy, and it was interesting. And, and at this point, you know, Bobby Flay was still the, in the restaurant every day. And I got to see him, and he was, his office was in the building. And to me, he wasn't a celebrity chef. He was the chef, and 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 I respected him, and, and I learned. And the uh, chef of the restaurant was Neil Manicle, who had been with Bobby for a really long time and an amazing teacher and, and a gentle heart. Um, so I started working at Mesa Grill on the hot app station for some reason, and it was hard. <laughs> so you, you worked at Mesa Grill for over three years, mm -hmm. and uh, you started on the line uh, when you left. You were the sous chef. Yes. Uh, can we talk a little bit about um, what's that grind like of rising up the ranks in a huge restaurant with an extremely well-known chef, a place that was very popular? Um, what's that like? It was hard. It was so hard. I mean, they... You know, I could work every station at that point, and it was great, and I had a passion for Mexican food, and I still do. I mean, that was a little more Southwestern, but really with Mexican roots. 
Um, when I got made a sous chef, I mean, the boys gave me a run for my money. It was hard and it was a struggle and I had to earn their respect all over again. After I earned their respect on the line as a cook, then I had to earn their respect as their leader. And um, it took a long time and it took a lot of figuring out how to manage people. And I think we're, we're all still learning how to manage people every day. And this was back in the day where it was it was a little different in the kitchen. And I was the only woman except for the pastry chef. And, and we just got beat up. And, you know, to get my point across and, you know, there's that commanding and demanding leadership. And I had to learn the hard way what was the right way at the time. Does that change you as a person or are you one way when you're at work and then you're a different way out of the kitchen? I mean, I think being a chef is who I am and I think it's kind of ingrained and I lead by example all the time. Um, I don't ask from any of my cooks what I wouldn't do myself. Um, and I think that's part of who I am in in and out of uh, the restaurant. You've worked for some some big names and at some really well-regarded, beloved places. And uh, you put in a lot of time at each one of those places. Mm-hmm. Um, you've spent a tremendous amount of uh, years uh, growing and rising in the ranks at the various restaurants. Um, this day and age, if you get a cook right. to stay for a year, oh, you're man. some sort of wizard, right? Every, metal. <laughs> everybody, everybody says, uh, what do you do to keep your people? Uh, so my question is, um, what did you learn from your past jobs about retaining talent? And also, does that even apply today anymore? I think it does. Cooks? I think you have to find the right young cooks. I do think you can read a resume and bring someone in and have your expectations. You'll keep them for nine months and be excited, or you'll keep them for two years. Um, you know, I, I still cook on the line with some of my guys on Saturday mornings. Our, our One of our owners expedites, and we have a lot of fun Saturday brunch together. And I think, I think that really helps uh, keeping people. And I think acknowledging their existence and getting them and growing with them and pushing them and, gives, and challenging them is what keeps them. Um, I think that is the hardest part, is actually keeping staff. I know we all complain we can't find people, can't find people, but they're right there in front of you. We just have to keep them and keep them entertained. Um, I believe staying with people for a long time is actually more of an education than jumping around because you never get to learn everything if you jump around. You can learn every station, but you're actually never going to see the restaurant evolve past that fourth season and seeing what the chef can do and teach you and you know, I stayed at, at Mesa for a long time. Uh, you know, I went to Lupa, and I wanted to be at Lupa so bad. And it was a fluke that I answered the ad at the right time, and, and the chef was having a baby, and he's like, you know how to expedite? I said, yes, because Mesa Grill, we do 400 covers a night. And he's like, great, I'm about to have a baby. And I said, okay, and I have no knowledge of Italian food. And I just had to keep studying and learning. And and I think there I had a fight to get downstairs to make the salumi and the prosciutto and the sausage. And if you didn't stay the distance at that restaurant, you would never learn the things you wanted from that restaurant. And I think I feel the same thing. I stayed at Avoce for four years and, you know, Vix is going to turn two this weekend and we're excited to see it. Of the three main places that we've referenced so mm-hmm. far, Mesa, Lupa, and Voce. Uh, is there one specifically where you um, you look back on it and you draw the most 
inspiration and also just uh, like strength and knowledge from one of those jobs in particular? I'm sure they're all valuable, but they're super valuable. It's interesting. I mean, I have such a love of chilies, and if you've eaten at Vicks enough, um, you know that. Um, it's I like my heat levels pretty high, um, and I you know the backbone of my Italian knowledge came from Lupa, but it was only the you know Rome and Lazio cuisine. And at Avoce, we challenged ourselves and and studied regions for four years. There was these regional menus we'd do every three weeks. So and there was no repeating dishes. So every three weeks you had to change a menu, you had to study, you had to buy books, you had to really really create. So I think all three jobs now, looking back, is kind of a culmination of what the food we do now at Vix. Uh, Avoce is a, was a Michelin-starred restaurant. Yes. And uh, the kitchen was helmed by Missy Robbins. Yes. Uh, you worked for men primarily, and then you worked for Missy. Mm-hmm. Um, you referenced earlier that you were you and the pastry chef yeah. were the only always right or the, or the only women in the kitchen, and that um, as a sous chef, it was hard playing with the boys in the kitchen. Um, was there a change at all when you went over to Avoce and Missy was running the kitchen? And um, did you did you learn anything from that experience? I, you know, I think working for a, a woman chef is is just as hard as working for anybody else. I don't think it really mattered in the end. Um, it was about the food and the way we cooked and the way we held ourselves. Missy is as tough as nails and it, it, and was amazing to work with for all those years. Um, I don't, I don't think it's, it really does matter. I mean, I don't think we could ask the, you know, I only have one woman in the kitchen now too, or two women and the rest are all these guys that are, are, are lovely. And you know, there's not a lot of testosterone in my kitchen. (laughs) It's just not the way it runs. And I think that's what having a woman chef does is there's, I mean, you know, don't don't be fooled. Missy can tell some dirty jokes too. You know? <laughs> Does um, a list like uh, best female chefs in New York City does that bother you? And if it does, how much does it bother you that there's still a separation in the culinary world where it's sort of like best chefs that exist, and then oh, let's uh, here's a list of best female chefs as if they're not on the same playing field for right. some it's like ridi- we're a for, tier below. for some ridiculous reason <laughs> division like, two <laughs> uh, missy robbins <laughs> has a michelin star and has an right. incredible new restaurant in williamsburg uh so uh why why is that why do you think that is that there's still not the same necessarily level of respect afforded to uh female chefs uh in the culinary because i think people still care about that stuff for some reason they care that there's this separation and difference. You know, people want to read about that and, and they want to see women rise. So I think it's almost like a, um, I don't think it's a negative thing. I think it's seeing the women kind of catching the men, but there's nothing to catch. It's all still equal playing field. But separating the, you know, the women chefs put to the side on these best female chefs of New York. I mean, there's no best male chefs of New York list. Maybe we should do that, and then we can. Everyone can be even, and then just bring them together, and then it's fair. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone just went and ate dinner and just enjoyed dinner and just and just <laughs> had some fun and and we just eat some pasta, we'll pour some wine, <laughs> yeah. we'll eat some pasta. You can pay right. your bill at the end. It'll right. be it'll we be can great. Wave to the kitchen, say thank you, and and then that's it. We don't need to separate ourselves. Uh, you're someone who. Uh, deeply enjoys seasonality you change the menu a lot i know that um you pull things from the menu like the instant that the season Mm -hmm. is done um 
people's love of the dish be damned, you right. use the market and uh, you swap things out. And uh, it seems like everyone that you've worked for and also in your restaurant, um, you do this because of the respect and not just because it's like, let's be farm to table, right? So right. Um, I know that you obviously went to, to Montauk from a very young age, that you have a connection to, to the to the ocean and, and to being out in nature, but is there one specific uh, person or a source that you inherited your love and appreciation for product from? Someone who really like drilled it into you? I mean, I think it's the days of, uh, of Lupa. I think, um, you know, Mark Ladner and Steve, my chef, and we, we had to go to the market. There, it wasn't there, and there wasn't Ubers. You had to stand there with your, you know, corn and six carts of, you know, six cases of tomatoes and, 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 you know, or he would go and just drop you, you know, a bag of something and be like, okay, I'd like to see this on the menu tonight. And you would just, just make it happen. Um, and I think it was really learning meeting the farmers back then has kind of set my base and my relationships. And, and now meeting the younger farmers, uh, we use a lot of stuff from Campo Rosso and, um, and Chris and Jesse really hold true to that old school farmer sense, but bringing new products too and being able to use Italian greens that are grown here in the United States and we're not bringing them in. Um, otherwise, yeah, I mean, if as soon as that corn went sour this year, it, I mean, it's still at the market. If you want to put corn on the menu, we can still have it. And I was sad to see it go, but I had to make that decision that day. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of keeps the cooks on their toes too. I think that's what excites them. And they get sad when the dish is time to go, but they also get excited when there's something new to learn. Vicks, uh, located on Great Jones, is owned by Victoria Freeman and, and Mark Meyer. Yes. Uh, they also co-own Cook Shop, and then they're opening another restaurant called Rosie's. Or Rosie's, it's yeah, it's Rosie's been open is for about open. a year Oh, and Rosie's half. is open. Okay, sorry about that. And so uh, they have a deep background in mm -hmm. food. They've owned restaurants in New York, Mark, uh, and Victoria have owned restaurants together for 10, 15 years at this point? Yes, longer. Uh, longer. <laughs> um, so... You have all this food background. You've got a business degree. It's a power squad. How collaborative is the whole environment at VIX? Are they hands-on? Are they hands-off? How does that impact your you see ability them to every do your day. job? Cool. Absolutely. You see them every day. And if you don't see them, they, there's, they're out of town. You know? And you know, Mark goes to the market for us when we can't do that. And he picks up for all four restaurants on Saturday mornings and then delivers them himself to every restaurant. And he'll ask you, why, why, why did you stop eating tomatoes? They're still there. They're still good. Or there's, you know, kohlrabi coming up or there's Brussels sprouts. And he'll, he's super present and involved in everything we do. Um, and he gets excited with us. And he really helps with the meeting new farmers. And he really wants us and supports us. When, when that Bonitalia truck pulls up every day and I get my couple ingredients that I import, he gets super sad about it. He really would love for us to be completely local, or at least from the United States. But, you know, Parmigiano is Parmigiano and Pecorino is Pecorino. So we can't, we can't do that. But he's, you know, he understands and he really pushes us to keep changing. And if he's bored of the food, then that means our guests are bored of the food. So we need to keep pushing ourselves. And he'll push this, us gently as a, as a friendly reminder. Gently. A gentle push. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, often over the years when I've been in the kitchen, I recount 
something that I did right when I was, before I started cooking professionally, I was doing like a internship basically. And I did something incredibly stupid and I spilled oil all over the floor and it was very embarrassing (laughs) and it was bad and everyone made fun of me. So you've been cooking for a very, very long time. I'm curious, um, is there sort of a specific mistake or error in judgment that you made once in your early cooking career that you think back to, to kind of, um, either ground you or do you, have you ever used it as a teachable moment in the kitchen? I mean, there's, I, I remember I was working the hot app station at, at, um, at Mesa grill and I had to make quesadillas out of an oven and, uh, the shrimp dish and all these, like, it was a lot of food coming off and it was a, it was a busy Saturday night and I was a mess. I was covered head to toe in, in ancho and chilies and, and I had all that plastic, um, like whole punched in plastic wraps and Neil comes on the station and he goes, okay, you have a lot to learn. You, you, you made it. And I said, okay, great. Um, and then he goes, he opened up my low boy and he looked in and there was like four, six pans with holes poked into the plastic wrap. And he goes, if I ever see this again, you're fired. And now it's, I mean, it's the, the cooks, if I see it, it's the same. I, I like cringe. I like, I mean, it's, it wasn't even an embarrassing moment. Um, that kitchen really, really taught me so many things. I mean, I overcooked 100 pork tenderloins one night, every single pork tenderloin over and over and over again. I just overcooked them. And all those little things in that kitchen really stayed with me. And I learned how to cook a pork tenderloin finally after a week later. But, you know, I ruined a lot of food. And and it's okay because I, I learned and I rectified it. And I didn't say make the same mistake again. But the hole in the plastic wrap really gets me still now. <laughs> I was going to ask you. Um, uh, so... Beyond that, the hole in the plastic wrap, is there things that um, ha- you seem like you have a very laid back leadership style? It seems like you're uh, someone who teaches by being there with the cooks. Yes. Um, but how would you describe your specific leadership style in the kitchen? I mean, if you asked me 10 years ago, four, you know, five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, um, it was it was a little rougher and it wasn't. And I expected and I demanded a lot more from people. And I believe now it's kind of in a different, softer voice um, and explaining why, you know, why that pork tenderloin is overcooked and how can we have fixed that. And it's about problem solving. I think teaching cooks now how to problem solve is a huge, huge, huge problem. Um, I think I think we forget to stop every once in a while because we're so busy and there's the phones ringing and the the lunch business and brunch and all that kind of stuff to just take a breath and to look at your cooks and be like, listen, these are hammered, <laughs> okay? Set a timer or let let me show you how to do this right. Mm-hmm. And taking that five minutes of my busy day to be like, I'm going to show you how to do this correctly and and really kind of helping them teach. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am tough. I am. I I totally am. And I demand a lot and expect a lot. And I hope to get those results. But if I can't tell them how to do it correctly and spend the time teaching them, then I shouldn't actually expect anything from them. You have spent most of your life in New York. Uh, The vast majority of your professional life, except for that little year in (laughs) Chicago, you've been cooking in New York. Uh, Have you ever had a thought about moving out of New York City? And if you did, is there somewhere else that you've always dreamed of cooking? Um, you know, there's that, that moment where you're like, I've just spent all these years in New York. How can I leave now? Like, I've just, I've just fought so hard and, and been brought up and brought down and like so many times over and over again. And um, and I do think a lot of there's, there's tricks of living in the city that makes you not want to ever leave. 
Um, I, I've looked at San Francisco a couple of times. My sister lives out there, and you know she always pushes me to be like, well, your nephews would like to see you more. Maybe you should work here. And then I come back to New York, and you fly in, and you're in the cab coming back, and you look at the skyline, and you're like, okay, uh, no, I, I'm kind of home. This is where I am. Do I like getting out of the city? Yes, very, very much so. Um, and if I could live anywhere, I mean, I would love to live in Italy, but I don't know how that would be possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, small trattoria on the countryside sounds great to me. So my last question, I know that you work a ton. I remember when I saw you in Montauk, you told me that it had been your first day off in like months and months and months. When you're not working, what do you do with your time? Is there somewhere that you like to go and eat? You know, you're, you've lived in New York for many, many years. How do you spend a little bit of your downtime? Um, I mean, I love biking. I, I really, really, truly... Um, love being on a bike and I think that freedom and that air and I mean right now it's so beautiful the trees are changing colors and um, and to get up to the top of Manhattan to look back around and, and get that fresh air and your phone's off and there's no place to go but just be on your bike and yourself and your thoughts um, eating wise I mean I, I, I love Uncle Boone's I, I feel I mean that spice level and that food really challenges me and, and I love sitting at the bar at Sodi. I know I make cacio e pepe for a living too, but it's someone else making it for me. <laughs> it's it's it, nice to just settle in with a bowl of pasta uh, you didn't cook for I yourself. I didn't cook and, and a glass of wine and, and it's such a civilized, peaceful place that those are the moments that I love living in New York and I love being a chef in New York um, where there's just that peace and quiet and it's you and that cracked black pepper and, and a little pecorino on top. And that's great. Hillary, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for uh, having me. I really appreciate you taking some time to share all your wonderful uh, history with us in New York City. Uh, join us next week, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. on the line on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.